This podcast is about so many aspects of life, and life is messy. Adult language and themes ahead. Listener discretion is advised. Somebody tell me who gonna have my back. Who needed help? Couldn't find it. Said you would, but was Ladies and gentlemen, keep your arms and legs inside the car at all times, because we're going there. Taboo Topics are back on the table. Hey, I'm Joe. I am LeJohn. And I'm Matt. And welcome back to the Going There podcast. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about something that a lot of Americans struggle with, which is addiction and also the recovery side of it. We're in a culture right now where it's cool and trendy if you're famous or you're rich. People are more willing to accept that path and those events. But for the rest of America, the other 99% of us, it's a taboo. And here to share his experiences is our friend and colleague, Mr. Luke Frazier. Luke, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Matt, Lejean, and Joe. It's nice to be here. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So, Luke, before we uh, roll up our sleeves and dig in here, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and your background and uh, kind of what brought you into – my circle of people. Now, uh, Matt, it actually is a really interesting story how you and I met. Um, it was around a time that I was looking to do some real more passion type projects in video work. And so I was looking around for some um, colleagues, some you know co-producers, some partners to do this, collaborators. And I got your name again, through someone that I had never met before and met in a really crazy, funky way. And the short version of that is... A men's restroom at a gas station. Yes. <laughs> it was at a truck stop, actually. But, so Nat, you know, Nat yeah. Bauman... Was your Uber driver. No, uh, she was the Uber driver of someone that I had dinner with who started talking about someone who was in video production. Did I know her? Did anybody follow that? Raise your hand. I got okay. some of it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, we heard Uber that's driver all, dinner. That's all you Perfect. can know. It was. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna. Tr- I'm gonna try to be uh, less pragmatic, more optimistic. There are times in our lives where things seem to happen out of serendipity. There you go. And and that's what. I, that, there's been a lot of that going oh, this, on. This this that's 2020. This, this podcast for for us has kind of been just like showered with kismet serendipsticks serendipsticks <laughs> so luke what uh what's your background because you i didn't find out until later on that you actually have a juris doctorate i do i do i, I uh, went to law school what kind of shit Wee. well you have a psychology degree and you never talk about that <laughs> well yeah so well, for multiple reasons <laughs> you know it's interesting one of the ways that um i've grown over time and i think all of us try to is to consider ourselves a lot more than what we do but for the longest time it was all about what i did so i had a degree in social work and did some social work but if we get into the story of my addiction a little bit more later Um, It had to do with compensating. Like I wanted to be a social worker so I could tell you or show you I was a good person when really I was a liar, cheat, and thief. Mm. Um, Just like me. It was the, it was the. Um, so it was like it was like your form of like false atonement. Is yeah, that what it is? Or or just uh, fronting, you know, just yeah. like being something on the outside and being something different on the inside. Uh, my first higher power was you, what you thought of me. Okay, so you give over to others what you are about by letting uh, letting them judge you. You know, 
understanding or trying to figure out how they judge you. Went in and out of the broadcasting field for a while, including uh, doing uh, public radio reporting and different kind of producing, and then then went back out and did some like nonprofit work again, trying to compensate once more for how shitty I felt inside and how I could show you that I wasn't a shithead. And why um, were you feeling shitty? Well, just the things I was doing, lying, cheating, you know, doing things that... Like ab- about... Um... About drinking yeah, and about doing drinking. drugs or about like stealing VCRs? Well, VCRs, for those who don't know, who are in the audience, <laughs> there used to be VHS tapes. Yeah, it was all that stuff, Joe. It was just kind of behavior. It was all negative behavior, manipulative, taking advantage of people. If you weren't going to take advantage of me, I certainly was going to take advantage of you. And so it was all that stuff. And sure, the drugs and alcohol were just part and parcel and symptomatic of, of the deeper issues that I was facing. Um, and so basically my background has been varied. I think the through line is always communications, whether it was with other people or with you know an audience. Um, I've done in front of camera work, I've done you know the producing side of it, um, in front of the microphone, just kind of, kind of all over the place with that. But again, the idea is that I've always stretched in a way to communicate one idea or another. It's because I've been where, where to an extent where you were. And there was a time, a point in my life where I just hated LeJohn Woods. I couldn't stand myself. But it took years after for me to understand that I didn't like that guy years prior. Did you know that you were a piece of shit while you were a piece of shit? At times, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to ignore when you're lying to someone's face again and again and again and doing those things that you weren't raised to do. You know, that my parents, who were good Kennedy liberals and good churchgoers, although the family in many ways got very dysfunctional. Like a good Kennedy liberal. Like a good Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. a good, excuse me, I'm the ninth kid, you know, which is called, of course, Irish birth control is called menopause. Yeah. And that's uh, so they ran out of time when, when I was there, number nine. Um, wow. So, yeah. And actually, in the program, there's something called the CIA being a member of the Catholic Irish Alcoholic Club. Um, so I'm a, I'm a member of that as well. So, yeah, Lejean, I to go back to your question, it's the idea that how long can you fool yourself and how long can you be in denial? I mean, Matt, I mean, you and I had some conversations, of course, over time in the past, what, year or more that we've known each other. Um, and I remember you talking about, you know, this this kind of how do you fool yourself? How do you kind of bury what you're feeling or maybe what you've grown up around and have to consider that to be part of your identity. It's work we all have to do. And I think what separates the people who are able to eventually go to bed and put their head on the pillow with a clean conscience are the ones who finally have that self-reckoning and the ones who fight it off until, you know, they're on their deathbed instead of, uh, you know, just a night's sleep. Yeah, the bitter end, the bitter end, the whole unholy trinity of rationalization, minimalization and justification. You know, I rationalized coming down here because Matt was my friend. I minimized the importance of it because it's just a fucking podcast. And then I justified being here because I really didn't have anything else to do for the next hour. This is just a fucking podcast with LeJohn, Joe, and Matt. So let me just go back to when you, quote unquote, were an asshole. No. <laughs> I didn't say asshole, oh, sorry, Joe. Piece of shit. There, thank you. But you're talking about yourself when you were um, still drinking and uh, using drugs, calling yourself a piece of shit, but that seems that seems possibly problematic. Do you think that your actions were, you know, piece of shittery status, or that 
you know, because uh, a lot of people say that alcoholism is a disease and it's a physical uh, allergy almost. If I understood you correctly, and this is just how, how I perceived it, that's interesting. That's what you heard. What I heard was due to a lot of things, not just the alcohol and the drugs and stuff, you were just making bad choices. Mm. Yeah, that... Why don't you guys just pick me apart and analyze me and talk about me, <laughs> yeah. and then I can just join in later. Sure, John and I will go have a sure. cup of coffee. You must have not gotten a lot of attention as uh, the ninth kid. Oh Jesus, yeah. that, that's that's funny actually, Joe, because there's recently I've been doing some deeper work with ego and where my ego mania comes from. And we joked, I'm not sure if we were on the air yet, but this idea of being an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. You know, talk about a paradox that I can tell you how great I am, but inside maybe I'm not feeling very good at all. And that gets very twisted up with the fact that sometimes I actually do and did back then really good things. You know, this this sense of an obsession that's triggered by my physical allergy. And that also the allergy thing also doesn't mean that once I start start drinking, I can't stop like till I'm passed out. Some alcoholics, that is their thing that happens. For me, I could binge drink. I could drink for a while, then not drink. You know, I could drink for a weekend straight and then take some time off. But context also played into that because I was married at the time and, you know, I she wasn't in love with my drinking. And after a while, I wasn't in love with her anymore. For respect of this person, I, I have somebody who's in my close circle of people who, when they would not drink for a few weeks, the other people around would go, See, everything's better. And I, I'd say alcoholism isn't just this one shape or mold mm. where it's like, no, they can't not drink a single day. It's, right. it's, the, there's still the, there's still the addiction there. There's still the disease underlying. And, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the people on the outside who just want it yeah. to be a good thing. They're like, yeah, it's great. Well, that's part of the alcoholic or, you know, addictive system too, how others treat us and how they get involved with our own disease. You know, and, and there's groups for that. I got to believe that it's not going to be too far away from your personal family that you know someone who's struggling with drugs and alcohol. You know, friend, family. I think we all know high-functioning addicts, people who refuse to admit that, that or, they suffer from it. Yeah, or even with the parameters that they see, like what the definition of an alcoholic or a drug addict is. Mm -hmm. if they're If they don't fall into that, like, myopic... Oh, category. absolutely. They feel like they're fine. And I, I wasn't mean, under the bridge. Yeah. I was never under the bridge. I never lost it. Well, I lost one job due to my use. But yeah, you start defining it in the narrow terms like that. And you can you can take yourself out of any category. Yeah. And you know, not just that. It's also hard because alcohol is such a social, it's accepted. It's so widely accepted in our culture. And fitting in is also important in our culture. That makes it tough to to know that you have an issue and then also want to make yourself better, but then you're risking like losing people or being ostracized. Yeah. Well, look, there's, again, I come out of the 12-step tradition mostly, and we talk about powerlessness and unmanageability. So I knew I was powerless over alcohol and drugs for a long time. I knew that people didn't drink like me when I was 18, 20, whatever. People did not, except the people I sought out that I could drink with that way. Oh, yeah. But the other half of that is unmanageability. And I could deny being unmanageable. Hey, I have a job. I bought a house. You know, I did all these things. I got money in the bank. So I can't be. I can't be that. I had I had a family member 
um, who was under a cocaine addiction. Okay. And they would ask me for money here and there and everything. And I knew exactly where that money was going. But to see my family member happy, it's like, damn it. I know this 20 bucks is going towards something that I don't want them to do. But at the same time, I know temporarily, I don't care if it's for a half hour, they're going to be happy. Did you have people or a person like that? Uh, that that's an interesting question. I, I, it depends how you define happiness. Um, people want you on the outside to look like you're enjoying life. I mean, we all want, I think, the people we care about to be enjoying life, to find life meaningful, to find life enjoyable. I guess I'm rejecting the word fun because if people knew that I was going to take drugs and, and alcohol to excess, I'm not sure they would say that I was having fun. The effect of it might be fun. And that's another maybe misconception is that I had a lot of fun drinking and using. I did. I mean, it. I don't mind admitting that. I'm curious to see what people's views on all of this stuff are. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of pour out first and you don't have mm -hmm. to like mm -hmm. take the scary walk down the plank by yourself. I'm not scared. I, I understand. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> really Just not. wait. We're here to go there. Um, I have somebody in my life who is has... It, it's not a one defined addiction. There are lots of problems. There is the mental allergy. There is the physical ailment. There is dependency. There is the wanting to numb things. And Lejean, the to me, the classic enablers aren't the people who are saying, go out and keep doing this. They're the people who aren't willing to do the hard work because it's like, well, I can't cut this person off or I can't tell them. I won't, you know, I won't do this. And, and it was so frustrating with me fighting and arguing with the people who were close to me in this situation saying, showing love for this person is not making sure that they're happy, is not making sure that they have a smile on their face. It's, it's going to be tough. Like it's going to get way worse before it gets better. I'm not saying like, come on, just do it. There's some people who are not able because of that relationship. Because it feels like I'm not showing you love. I, I've i never been somebody who has been attracted to drug use. I, I've, I, I can count probably on one hand how many times I've smoked weed in my life. It just does nothing for me. I will be the first to admit I love me and my drinks. But <laughs> um, the older I get, the it's never been a need. It's always been a kind of like, I enjoy it, but in social situations. I'm not somebody who sits around and drinks by myself. I actually find it, um, and my mother and my, my, my father passed my senior year in high school, but uh, they found it very impressive. My mom, my mom still does, that um, I am not like swimming in alcohol on a, a daily basis, and the fact that I actually do it. Um, one, because both my mom and my dad were big-time alcoholics, and before my dad passed, I think he was – boy 45 plus years in NAA and my mother at this point maybe oh, I want to get this wrong long time in AA okay so um um and for me I could take it or leave it I can drink my ass off and everything I have a beer gerator in my house it's just for beer okay and there are beers in there that I probably bought in August that you know they're just in there and when I feel like drinking them I will yeah, you know fucking amateur <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Thank you. Well, but but there's a good manipulation trick that you hear all kinds of things in, in meetings. But one of them was this guy kept talking about keeping this box of wine in his fridge 
And constantly, because his wife wasn't a wine drinker, he'd empty it, fill it back up again, empty it, and be like, the same box is in there, honey. I mean, what, <laughs> what, 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 what do you care about? I mean, how are you making a big deal out of this when he'd be dead drunk, but the box was still the same? He's like, I'm drunk on Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> High on life. She's like, he just keeps reproducing the same wine. How? Oh, okay. That's where that was. I'm sorry. I thought that was, I thought that was something else. John, what about drugs? Oh, listen, I made it my business to sample each drug possible. Um, I had a roommate in my first year of college who taught me a lot about drugs because he was deep into it as far as um, using them. And, 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 uh, and I don't know if he was selling them or not, but. Judging by his shoes, I think he was selling them. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I've I've done I've done the coke, I've done uh the weed and everything, and never got hooked on it. It was always just take it or leave it. And as I'm sitting there saying it to myself, it's like, did I not get hooked on it, or did I just somehow stop because of something else? But no, I just I, again, it's been drugs and alcohol have been taken or leave it my whole life. Joe, what about you? Yeah, I don't know because. I feel like if you talked to me and convinced me, maybe I would be like, yeah, I guess I am an alcoholic or a drug addict, but I don't drink all the time. <laughs> You're but far when I too do much drink, of a lightweight to be an alcoholic. I was going to say, when say. I drink, I want to like really be a part of the group. So I probably will drink. I know that I drink more than I should. And uh, there have been times where I've been with people who can drink me under the table, but I will still be drinking. Um, also at... Um, UCB, we didn't get paid in money, but we got paid in drinks. So even if I didn't want to drink, I was like, well, I'm losing my, I'm losing money, not drinking. And then, you know, I just want to have a good time and have fun. What's UCB? Sorry, that's Upright Citizens Brigade. That's an improv theater. Okay. Also, I do love weed. I love weed and I will smoke it every day. I'm a huge proponent and I'm also a huge proponent of hallucinogens. I think that they are great <laughs> for you. And I do think that, hallu no, but so I guess I'm not like ready to admit that I want to go to rehab or something. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I know people who, I could take two people who both smoke the same amount of weed. One of them does it to bring down their anxiety. Somebody on the other side went from being this high functioning, like really smart person to having no desires, no goals and, and no purpose in life. And so the same drug, drug, quote unquote, I'm saying with air quotes, the same drug, same usage, two very different outcomes. I think, I think it's all very contextual. But Luke, let's get into your story. How did you kind of get hooked and, and, and where did it take you? There was a lot of mental illness and addiction up and down my family. Some people say, well, it runs in my family and my family it's sprinted, like Olympic speed it sprinted. So, you know, the generational stuff. Um, so it was always like a part of the vibe and the context. My siblings are very much in the hippie thing and there would, you know, be all that kind of stuff around. Um, and then because of the, the mental illness and losing some siblings who died, um, I wanted to get away from how I felt. You know, I couldn't stand it. I was hurting. I was a hurting pup. Um, where, where, like timeline-wise, uh, where are we 15, at right now? 16. Okay. Um, so eighth grade, starting to use it weekends, doing more and more, discovering pot, ninth grade, you know, into high school. College comes, all bets are off, you know, drinking and smoking pretty much daily um, when I could, hallucinogens, other kinds of things. So, Did, did your family, siblings, friends, I mean, your friends were probably doing it with you, but- yeah, you find the people. The were, there, were there people around you who were concerned, who raised concern? Um, at that's, well, it's funny. 
uh, youngest of nine, my parents were pretty much worn out by the time that I was starting to do this. <laughs> was, they, were, yeah. they were. I mean, That's a they, thing. Had, they had lost two kids. Yeah. They had, you know, uh, struggled with helping other kids through mental illness. It was like, hold your breath, cross your fingers, and hope that Luke and my sister closest in age, Felicity, were okay. And I could be okay. I graduated high school in three years. So, you know, that outside stuff, that's what it keeps coming down to is the outside stuff was fine. I was achieving, you know, I was, I was known to be smart and and so, and so and why, charming. why question it? Like so right. many lawyers mm-hmm. and these people, it's like, hey man, he's just, he's just getting through. It's like, right. you got to cram, you got to cram. I mean, the, I went through law school, I went through law school drunk, man, drunk all the time. Um, and that was, you know, again, something I can do. In all do. seriousness, and I'm not, that, well, that actually is kind of impressive. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's seven years, right? I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, by, I'm by no means condoning it, <laughs> no, but that's that's pretty uh, goddamn yeah. impressive. Yeah, well, and, and let's see, and having a disintegrating marriage and having a kid and being completely uh, out of control, stealing from my employer. And I could just look good on the outside. You know, and I'm not, this isn't about, patting myself on the back. In fact, it should be a cautionary tale that just because you can achieve and continue to get good grades, that's what it is. It's this dichotomy. You know, we're really good actors. We're really good. And and that, you know, here's the other thing. I don't like addicts and alcoholics to take all the credit for we're like this and we were the ones who are manipulative. You could be straight ass person and still be manipulative, un- dishonest. You know you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't want to take credit or take alcoholics sometimes in the room. So like, it's because we're alcoholics. No, you just, you might not drink at all and still be an asshole. I mean, it also sounds like, I feel like a lot of people who share their stories had had traumatic experiences and they did want to escape oh yeah i feel like that's a mental health thing too i don't think that mental health is i think it's very stigmatized mental health here as well as alcohol and drug addiction so if you are functioning or you know if you look good on the outside we're we're certainly not going to label that as an addiction problem because that looks bad no the yeah the intersection with mental health is very very strong you know and but you can also disguise it too. I mean, you could be getting treated for mental health like I was, and uh, my psychiatrist would say, you know, you drinking it all, Luke? I have a couple glasses, a couple glasses. And that's that's always what the cops hear too. I talk to cops and they're always saying, when they pull someone over and they're drunk as shit, and they're like, did you have anything to drink tonight, sir? <clears throat> yeah, I had, I had two beers. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been that person before. And in our minds, we're going, this cop is going to appreciate my honesty. <laughs> I, I, I got say, this, guys. Because if I say none, they're going to call bullshit and arrest me. If I say I drink a bunch, I just I just turned on myself. But if I say I had two beers, they're like, this young fellow's okay in our book. <laughs> Go get him. Be careful out yeah. there. All right, this is good stuff. All right, everybody, we're going to take ourselves a quick musical break. Uh, you are listening to the sounds of Alamod. Yes, indeed, a uh, Cleveland, Ohio rap artist, musical artist who is doing some big things out here and is trying to reach the next level, and we're going to help him do that. So please enjoy the sounds of teamwork, brick, and dead throughout this episode from Alamod. Yes, indeed. Poverty, drug dealers, and killers. The jungle, lion snakes, gorillas. The home of Steve Harvey and Bone Thugs. You not with the Cavs, then Kevin get no love. Got the Glock 23, LeBron James, J.R. Smith, and Wesson shooting from long range. When the trunk pop, you know what's about to go down. Somebody finna take an L like that plague with the Browns. 
He on the ground begging him, please, while dude is standing over him, ready to squeeze. He said, because of you, my cousin no longer breathe. And start spraying the cannon like it's fucking for breeze. Next so in the early 2000s, you decided to try to get sober. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so, sure it's not one event. No, but. I mean, it was knowing people who were in the program, you know, so I knew about AA. I knew about addiction. Again, I mentioned my family up and down. So it was finally had become, uh, you know, you get hollowed out, really. You, you, lose, you lose a big part of your soul. You know, you get really, and, and that's, probably where my bottom was, was realizing that, you know, there wasn't nothing left inside. And that's different than the bridge and, you know, the things that look different from the outside. So I just got sick and tired, you know, being sick and tired. And um, were there outside influences? Yeah, I mentioned my marriage was disintegrating. I didn't really want to rescue it, but I kind of felt like I should try a little bit. And then, um, you know, I ended up saying, okay, I'll try treatment because I had been, actually there was, you know, I ended up in the hospital in a dual diagnosis unit, mental health and drug abuse. Were you pretty much using whatever you could get your hands on or did you have your bag of favorites? favorites. I mean, so it was booze by the end, you know, pretty much, you know, the wake up, there was a wake up call. There was an accident. I had gone to, here's, here's, here's my, the last drink. Um, My wife was out of town you know, drank real heavy the night before. I was unemployed, got up. There was only like three beers in the fridge and some, you know, maybe a finger of vodka in the little bottle. So I polished that off and I said, I got to get some, you know, I got to get some more. So I take, first I take my dogs to the park because I'm a good responsible pet owner. Then I go to the store. I got my, you know, like a 12 pack, a bottle of vodka. And I used to drive and, you know, drink and drive. I, I'm, a, I'm a felon. I'm just not convicted, you know, because the amount of times I drank and drove was just beyond uh, count almost. You know, we, we'd all be liars if we said we'd never done it. It's amazing. Since I got sober, I have not been arrested for drunk driving. <laughs> it's just amazing. But, I wonder what the correlation is. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, so I'm leaving, you know, getting my nice little lunch and my booze and I make a left-hand turn, with the, uh, miscalculated how the other car was coming up the street. I made it against traffic and they smashed into the back of my car. Um, so my first thought, first thought was I got to get rid of this beer before the cops come. And the woman in the other car was injured slightly, thank God. Um, but my dog, yeah, she, she deserved slightly, it. Slightly injured. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. See, usually like when I'm telling this story, people are like, really, you know, like, yeah, but not you, you guys. You not t- here, sir. You, okay. told, you told us, let's don't have pity for me. Let's not take this too seriously. Okay, you know what? I'm going to get your, I'm going to get you now because actually the dog was in the back of my car was killed. In the impact. Oh, wow. See, told you. You guys can handle that. Mm-hmm. Damn it, Come man. on. There Damn. you go. Huh? Huh? That's why I didn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, you know, that was certainly a... Um, what kind of dog was it? It was oh, a hound no. mix. <laughs> Don't answer. Her name was Sophie. <laughs> oh. Oh. Sophie's choice. You guys next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it was her choice. Did you say Sophie's choice? I said Sophie's choice. Thank you. Yeah, it was um, like Sophie's choice because I could drink. And know that I was risking life and limb, myself and others, and my dog. Um, or I could, it, it was an impossible choice not to drink, you know? And that was, that's where I ended up that day. So give me a second, give me a second. I got sober in September 2005. So this was earlier, and this was, you know, the end of August um, 2005. 
So 15, more than 15 years ago yeah. as yeah. of the time of recording this. So mm-hmm. that's an awesome achievement. Yeah, yeah. thank yeah. you. Yeah. But, Very uh, well done. But uh, so you're in this horrible situation and you and you think, I my dog died in this car wreck. This person's injured, but I have to get rid of this beer. Yeah, exactly. And I got out of the car and I shoved it in the gas station trash can and then got back in my car. At that time, I didn't know the dog had died. Um, but that sparked seven words in my head. It doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and that was the real reckoning because part of what I think drug addiction is, is a lack of imagination. You know, it's a failure of imagining a life different than you currently have or think that you're going to have. And you can't imagine something different. So that gave me a real, uh, you know, but being totally honest, um, part of then when I went into treatment from there, it was to get out of the jackpot of just having had an accident, my dog being killed, and my wife finally saying that's pretty much it. Or or me, uh, us finally deciding that was it, or at least me deciding it was. So... You know, I go into treatment and there's something real funny about that door slamming shut behind you and you can't leave. The door's locked and there you go. So it's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. uh, Another great movie, Ken Kesey, The Book is Better. It's narrated by Chief, the Native Mm, American guy. Have you read that? Amazing book. Are you serious? Yeah, it's narrated by, um, in the voice of Chief. But so, yeah, then I decided to take it seriously. I mean, we talk about moments of grace. We talk about, you know, a spiritual awakening. There's lots of things that you can point to. But what, where I was pointed to was that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, So I ended up going to treatment. It broke down the barriers of my denial of unmanageability because your life is unmanageable if you end up in a place like that. Right. You know, you can't pretend that just because you have the job or you do this and that, you're okay. Did you have the support that you knew you needed or were you your best support? So I had siblings. Um, I had friends who were there for me. I knew a couple of people who already were in AA. I had a counselor in treatment who was wonderful. He, um, you know, he, he fooled me the first few nights and I said, I'm getting out of here. Because again, I wasn't court ordered. And he said, yeah, just give it one more day. And I'm certain that you've uh, mentally thought about, you know, the times that you went through that process and everything how things would have been if you didn't have that kind of support and, oh, yeah. and, and if you would have made it or not. And well, where that, would you that, be? Well, that's that's exactly. And you guys, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in you guys t- talking about this too. You know, when you have that support of people and how it can change your whole attitude and outlook on life, you know, it, you're no longer isolated. And, um, you know, tell me, I mean, Matt, you have, you said you talked about this sugar and this kind of caffeine thing. I mean, do you have someone that you can talk to about that? If you, if you get concerned about it, I mean, do you talk to Lindsay about it? Do you say, man, I've really been off the rails with this sugar? Lindsay's not trying to hear that shit. <laughs> She's got other Lin- things to do. Lindsay, <laughs> Lindsay, uh, <laughs> I threw her under the bus in almost every podcast. We're talking about one flu or the cuckoo's nest. Lindsay's kind of like my nurse ratchet who lives at home. And he's always like, Matt, you had too much sugar today. As I'm on like my 16th lap around the couch, I'm like, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. <laughs> uh, you know, sugar is one thing. Uh, the fact that I think you had people who you had not pushed out of your life or they had not left your life who were not addicts themselves, I'm assuming at least some of them, a lot of times it's on one side, you have the enablers and on the other side, the people who just can't take it anymore. And it's like, call me when you're clean. Uh, the fact that you had people who were in the middle. Yeah, but I will say all, all of my relationships are fractured. I mean, not one of them, especially with my family, was where it is today. 
I mean, they're, I have beautiful relationships today with all my s- remaining siblings, um, and that's a function of being sober. That's a function of being in recovery. You kind of grazed it. What is recovery? What really is recovery? Um, I think recovery is adopting a new way of living, a new design for living, where you are authentic, you are um, honest, you're willing to be, you're open-minded, you have a sense of ease and comfort about yourself and your place in the world. But besides that, I mean, recovery is a celebration. For me, I am much more able to do the things I always wanted to do, you know, whether it's through art or music or creativity, whatever it is, now I can embrace that. Whereas before it was, maybe I'll do that sometime. Maybe that's a good idea. I mean, it's freeing. It's freeing. That's interesting to me that um, you feel like you're less inhibited, um, like performing art or doing art. Because I feel like so many artists and performers are uh, fueled by alcohol and drugs. And and there's always this pressure to be good. So if that's your edge, you're going to keep doing it. But it almost seems like the actual edge is being comfortable with yourself. Yes. You know, that I have an ability to meet anyone at any time and be okay. It sounds like you at least had some form of interaction with AA. Uh, oh, I'm, did I'm you a sober through? member of AA. Okay. So right today, yeah. And so for our listeners, AA was actually started in Akron, Ohio, which we are just right outside of it. I grew up in Cuyahoga Falls, which is right next door to Akron. Obviously, the most well-known kind of like uh, recovery uh, that's out there to this day. And and this isn't from a place of judgment. This is, I'm curious to know your understanding of it. The entire thing is built around, first and foremost, you have to accept a higher power. And do you see that as problematic? You have to, well, you have to admit you're powerless and then find a power greater than yourself. You know, whether that's the group, whether that's God, whether that's Allah, whether that's Buddha, whatever it might be, you're not God. Okay, you ain't it. So you don't have to accept Jesus Christ as your oh, Lord and Savior. No, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. I mean, I haven't gone through it, so I'm, okay, I'm, I'm legitimately sorry. I, I asking. I thought you were joking about that one. No, absolutely not. Now, AA was started by white men, um, actually pretty successful white men, although uh, Bill Wilson had made and lost many fortunes due to alcohol on uh, stock market and, and where else. But then there was the Dr. Bob, and there was different people of great stature who first started AA. So their God tended to be more of a Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition. But no, nowhere in the big book does it... In, in fact, there's two places... If the, the 12 steps are principles, and you live by them, and you do certain actions based on those 12 steps. The only two things that are underlined in those 12 steps are God as you understand him. Now, the hymn can be problematic. You know, it's 1939. It's the power that you decide, you know, you can rely on. And it's the paradox. You admit your powerlessness in order to gain strength. You know, you talk about being unable to control something so that you can be in a different place. You talk about, you know, having a sense of desperation so that you can have hope. That seems how forgiveness works, right? If you forgive your own faults, first you have to admit them. Yeah, right. And that's why it's called steps. As in, you can't possibly get to this point of kind of self-awareness and realization without first admitting that where you're at right now ain't working. Ain't working. Right. That starts within the self. Right. That's right. And the, the, you know, I I think that the 
the love that's shared among those who've gone through the experience, and you've talked about that, Matt, you know, that we have certain ways that you can relate to people that you've gone through, you know, oh, I was in, you know, war with that person, and I was in this, you know, flood with that person, whatever it might be. Well, I was in hell with a lot of people, whether I was physically there with them or not. It's amazing to me. I've gone to AA meetings around the globe, and it's amazing to me how in any language, any person, the stories remain the, the same. same. You know, we have, we have uh, kind of, Typical stories in strange lands because they're, the world of alcoholism and drug addiction is strange. It's not doesn't make sense for people who don't haven't been part of it. I don't think it doesn't make sense that you would leave your your kid in the car seat and go in the bar and drink. Um, you know, so these things that don't make sense. But I can tell you, many an alcoholic who did just that, yeah. and so the experiences are shared despite there being you know differences on the surface. If if it's Luke in mm, October of 2019, because I'm certain a lot of people are going through this, unfortunately. Luke in 2019 just decided to start this path. And then COVID hits, the pandemic hits. Yeah. And you're physically in 2019 in October in a location with other people. You're going, you're sharing mm -hmm. your stories mm -hmm. and everything. You're feeling empowered and whatnot. Bam, pandemic. Yeah. Does Luke survive it? That's a great question. I mean, some people I know, I, I've complained prof profusely about Zoom meetings because you don't get the connection. You don't get to hug people. You don't get to be right next to them. You don't get to laugh the same way when you're not sitting in the same room. So I'm being a whiny bitch about Zoom at one meeting. And uh, someone said, you know what? I love Zoom meetings. I got sober in March. Wow. Okay. So they, yeah. were, they, they don't know anything but Zoom meetings. Right. And so I was like, oh boy, there you go. You know, focusing on yourself. Matt mm -hmm. talked about it. The negation of self, principles and practices, it's about getting away out of self and leaning towards others. So there I was, totally just worried about, I don't like Zoom. I don't like it as much. And this person said, I love it. I've gotten sober. This is the greatest thing. That's amazing. Yeah, that was that's a good story. And then the 17 other people who went out and drank because they hated Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one uh, in 17, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I guess there are just like many ways to, like you said, many paths to recovery. Um, I have a question. We talked about hallucinogens and about how they are a drug. But there have been a lot of studies where they are good with treating addiction as well as mental illness. Do you have any specific thoughts on those? Well, you're probably referring to the past couple of years. There was even a pretty major work of uh, research that came out, Harvard and yeah. whatever. And have you read the Michael Pollan book? I haven't. I got it out of the library and skimmed it. Yeah, I'm going to admit it, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, it was, it, I read the book review and then okay. I said, I got to get this. But then It I was a long book review. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't know for other people. For me, hallucinogens were about negating my experience and getting out of my experience. I enjoyed hallucinogens a lot. Um, and I don't know that I would use them today as a therapeutic, but I know there's people that are having great success with that. But it's controlled, done in controlled circumstances. Well, from what I understand, people will be given hallucinogens and then be in a room with a support person, right. like a coach or whatever. Yeah. And you know, it's not cut with speed or whatever other things it was. Okay, so Joe, you're actually the one who 
told us to watch the animated uh, oh midnight gospel so midnight gospel so i watched the first episode and had dr drew in it and they're talking about it and essentially what he was saying because they were like you know you're taking these bad things he goes well it, the chemicals aren't bad things Let, let's get away from saying that um and i think what when it comes to drugs it's it's the manufacturing process and and where they lace it with stuff versus it kind of in its natural form and you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say alcohol or drugs are good or bad, but they certainly impact people differently. Yeah. Well, what are you using peyote for? People use peyote and, and psilocybin mushrooms as examples. To be so a these good are mom. Na- these are natural. <laughs> Just to get, well, no, okay. To be a good mom or to get through your day. To be a good mom or to, you know, break up relationships. What's your intention? What's your motive? And finish the laundry. <laughs> why are you? If only I could have more cocaine. I, I folded it really house weird. Clean. Yeah, I could get this house clean. <laughs> Joe, you did origami with the underwear again. Knock it off. So it's yeah. Some that should of it's be celebrated. Motive. Yeah. <laughs> some of it's why are you doing it, and what are you yeah. hoping to get out of it? But uh, there's things that are hip. And there are things that are like, oh, my God. And then there are things that really are like we've seen the the heroin epidemic talking to people who work in the hospitals, people who, you know, that's not in your life. You don't realize how bad it is. The stigma of it, though, it, it's funny because when Luke told me that he is a recovering alcoholic or drug user, it was so nonchalant because I go, he goes, hey, man, why don't we have my wife and I should have you and your wife over for a cookout one of these days. I go, well, let us bring something. Let me bring a bottle of wine or something. And I kept trying to offer booze because in my family, that's what you do. You get together, you're drinking. We can't put up with each other sober. He was very nonchalantly, oh, actually, no, I don't drink. I, I'm, I don't mind telling you I'm a recovered alcoholic and drug user. And I'm like, so um i'll bring some cookies (laughs) Uh, you know and and uh but again with our relationship and personalities it just kind of flowed into the next topic yeah and i I really i mean you have to know for yourself uh what your tolerance is for being in a bar or going to hear music in a bar or whatever you keep saying recovered alcoholic there's some of those in aa who would you know, shoot you down immediately. I understand. You're, yeah. You know, but, it's like saying ex Marine. There is no such thing as an ex Marine. Okay. You but, die a Marine. Yeah, they get really but pissed the, about the that. The further Seriously. dimension of that, okay, recovering because it's a daily thing versus recovered. There is a part of our literature that talks about, you know, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Sure. And that's the truth. I have recovered from this hopeless state of mind and body. I'm in recovery and recovering from drug and alcohol because I could pick up a drink. Tonight, I mean, and I we've could, seen sadly a lot of people do that during, during 2020. Exactly. So let, let, let's just, yeah. if we can, put it under the umbrella of therapy. There is no one size fits all. I've talked to people who say they tried like uh, hypnotherapy, and it was everything in the world. And there are people who, you know, used es- essentially like mysticism and and uh, you know uh, forms of religion. There's a Buddhist recovery. Yeah, exactly. So I, I. I think it's okay that there's not a one size fits all. I think it, if there's not a little bit of uh, custom tailoring to except, it, except if, and I've experienced this with people that I've known in the program, if they are so concerned about what other people would think of them if they knew it, then there's a certain level of fear that continues into the program. And they're holding on so tight to the fact that no one can find out I'm an addict or an alcoholic. And there might be some good reasons for that. I mean, if a medical license, for instance, or something where it would affect them professionally. But the point is that once you accept who and what you are, then I don't really need to care what you think of me because of that. 
somebody somebody out there listening to this right now whether or not they're fully self-aware but they know they're they're 1990s luke what can you say to them what hope can you give them and what advice can you give them what is the first thing that they should do i would say that if you're worried about the kind of uh use the kind of drinking the kind of drugging that you're doing if you're worried about it if others have talked about being worried about it that you trust and that know you and love you then your first step is to take an inventory you know there's all kinds of things i'm sure online you can talk about or you can find things that are you know here's some questions to ask yourself you know do you drink alone because you don't want other people to know you're drinking has drinking ever interfered with your job um have you ever been told that you drink too much um do you sneak drinking you know when you drink can you stop when you want to stop? And that's what you have to do. You have to take your own inventory. No one else is, is supposed to take it for you. And you can decide for yourself whether there's a reason you need to address this. I, I can't speak to alcoholics or, or people out there who are struggling. What I can speak to is somebody who has been on the other side of it. Um, I've had friends who went to Al-Anon, which is the supporters of and, and friends and family of people who are in recovery or, or hoping to be in recovery. If you think just loving someone from the sidelines is enough, it, it usually isn't. It's usually a form of enabling because, at least from my personal experience, people see that as they're okay with this because otherwise they would say something. Loving somebody is helping them get to that point where they're willing to take that inventory. If you're talking about taking the focus off of you, that's what that is. It is, I will take the consequences of this person hating me if it means that they might have that small chance of getting better. So silence is enabling as well. Show love. It's not as simple as making sure somebody has a smile on their face. When I talk about a few years back, how I just looked in the mirror and I just didn't like that guy. Um, that's where it has to start, which seems like a simple ass question. But do I genuinely love myself? You know, and if you can answer that question genuinely, I think that's a great start towards whatever type of recovery that you need. I just think it takes a lot of courage and I think it's important that we talk about it. And uh, it's not just about drugs and alcohol. It's about anything. Trying to just run away from reality. Uh, well, thank you guys for having me on. It really is important that people understand that there's all sorts of people who are in recovery and are similar to their situations, you know, that we're in it together and we are about the recovery that means we can love ourselves more, that we're, we can be uh, a part of a support network that is important to us. And, you know, the other thing, I and quickly about being willing to talk about being an alcoholic and drug addict is that then others who might need help can approach me. You know, and I'm not saying necessarily podcast audience, but I'm saying when I talk about it at my work, you know, I've gotten people to say to me, God, my, my uncle really needs some help. Can you, can you do, can you talk to him? So yeah, uh, just thank you. And thank you for the work you do. And, and uh, I hope we went there enough. Can you tell the audience real quick about your new company and what it is that you do and, and share your URL? Sure. It's Now Communications. We do um, messaging workshops for nonprofits and mission-driven businesses, video production for videos that will show the world why your company or nonprofit is doing the work they do and how important it is. Uh, I do presentation training for people who want some help because you know we all are scared of getting up in front of groups. 
um, and also some multi-platform writing, freelance writing. So it's Now Communications, and it's uh, luke-now.com. Go there now. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much, Luke, for coming on, man. Amazing stuff. Learned so much today, and I truly appreciate you and your time. Uh, once again, our musical artist of the episode is Alamad. You can find him on YouTube at youtube.com slash youngalamod. That's the word young, A-L-O-M-O-D. You can follow him also on Twitter at I am underscore Alamod. Also on Instagram at I am underscore A-L-O-M-O-D. O-M-O-D Alamad We just went there Now you can go to Instagram at the Going There Podcast Facebook at Going There Podcast or email us at goingtherepodcast at gmail.com This podcast is made possible by its hosts and Frame One Media in association with Lindsay Baker Tyler Kubisti, Michael Madgar Joe Cali, and Bobby Thomas